You're listening to Keep It Brief on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM WRFH. This is Camden, and I'm here with SK, and today we are talking about a hot-button issue, juvenile life without parole. Yeah, so the United States juvenile justice system recently crossed a pretty large milestone. In February of this year, on February 7th, 2023 specifically, Illinois became the 26th state to ban juvenile life without parole. Okay, so 26 states have banned this. What does it mean? Where does it apply? How does this whole thing work and how did it come about? Yeah, so it essentially stems from the idea that a difference exists between juveniles and adults in terms of criminal culpability, responsibility, and the capacity that they have for rehabilitation. And specifically, um, what this sentencing was banned for is um, for specific homicidal crimes. So it doesn't stem from the idea that we can't use this as a, as a sentencing anymore, but rather prior to this, there were specific homicidal crimes that if juveniles were found guilty of, then they were automatically given the sentencing of life without parole. Okay. So now it's mandated that more attention be paid to different aspects of maybe their childhood or their home life or their perceived um, ability to be rehabilitated and to eventually become a productive member of society rather than just writing them off for good. Gotcha. So when you say child, that's just anyone under the age of 18, right? Right. So it actually varies state to state. Um, um, and you can look up your state's specific age of criminal responsibility. Some of them, I think, for that dictate that you be tried and sentenced as an adult are as old as 19, but some are as young as, I think, even 10 or 11. Oh, wow. Gracious. Right. Um, so it depends by state, but still, it's an interesting topic considering that we can all live in one country under the same federal laws, but you can have the difference of criminal responsibility with as much as a, almost a decade age gap between two people who are committing a crime when I would say most people with common sense recognize a significant difference in a 10-year-old versus a 19-year-old in terms of their cognitive function and ability to make decisions. That is cra- That is crazy. I can't believe that. It's actually weird, too, because um, I think this is a, a unique issue for the United States. Yeah. So what's really interesting about this, actually, is the United States is the only country in the world that still allows um, the juvenile life without parole sentences. And back in 1989, the UN wrote up a treaty at their convention on the rights of the child And basically the point of this treaty was to bring about and discuss the best way to protect children's rights all across the globe. So the treaty then spells out what rights children have and like the responsibility of governments in protecting those rights. So there were 140 countries that signed this treaty, the United States being one of them, but they did not ratify the treaty. So basically what that means is they agree with everything that was stated, everything that was discussed and decided, but they don't want to be legally bound to hmm. follow these different... That's interesting. Yes, these different restrictions. Like, if you agree with it, why wouldn't you just... Exactly. And some of these things have to do with, you know, criminal issues in children. Other things are 
saying, hey, kids have the right to free speech. Kids have the right to practice different religions. Children should be, you know, kept within their family unit, things like that. So there's a lot of more basic and, you know, easy to understand rights that the UN was concerned about. And then also there's the rights uh, that apply to, you know, sort of what we're talking about today when it comes to sentencing children and determining what punishments are appropriate when kids commit crimes. So Article 37 of this treaty is what deals in particular with the idea of sentencing children. And I'll just like read some little blurbs from what the UN put together once again back in 1989. So 1989, when the UN said all of this compared to 2023, like you said earlier, when Illinois became the 26 states, there's a large discrepancy in dates there. But basically, it just says, you know, no child shall be subjected to torture or other cruel, inhuman, or degrading treatment or punishment, neither capital punishment nor life imprisonment without possibility of release shall be imposed for offenses committed by person persons below 18 years of age. That obviously plays directly into what we're talking about today. It also says no child should be deprived of his or her liberty unlawfully. Uh, the arrest, detention, or imprisonment of a child shall be in conformity with the law and shall be used only as a measure of last resort. Every child deprived of liberty shall be treated with humanity and respect. So all these issues are obviously just concerned about protecting children, protecting their rights as children when they obviously are at their most vulnerable. And I think it's important to recognize that regardless of, you know, necessarily what side of the aisle you're on or what you might believe um, ideologically, like protecting children is it's a bipartisan issue. It's an issue that everyone should care about. So that's what the UN tried to do in 1989. And you are listening to Keep It Brief on 101.7 FM, Radio Free Hillsdale. What's interesting about the last couple years, I think, is that although the United States didn't choose to ratify the the treaty from the yes, convention on the rights the, of the child. Yes. Yeah. yeah long name. Mm-hmm. Um, in the last, I would say 20, 30 years specifically, there have been several Supreme court cases that have sought to at least in part enact some of the more specific ideology or verbiage expressed in that treaty into mm-hmm. actual, like actually put it into action. In the first case of Miller versus Alabama, Um, It has to do with a 14-year-old boy committing murder. So in July of 2003, Evan Miller, along with his friend Colby Smith, killed Cole Cannon by beating Cannon with a baseball bat and burning Cannon's trailer while he was inside. Miller was just 14 years old at the time. In 2004, Miller was transferred from the Lawrence County Juvenile Court to Lawrence County Circuit Court to be tried in his adult for capital murder during the course of an arson. In 2006, a grand jury indicted Miller. At the trial, the jury determined Miller guilty. The trial court sentenced Miller to a mandatory term of life without parole. In Miller's companion case, which was brought together with it to the Supreme Court, Contrell Jackson, along with Derek Shields and Travis Booker, robbed a local movie store in Blytheville, Arkansas, in November of 1999. The three boys were all 14 years old at the time. While they were walking to the store they were planning on robbing, Jackson discovered that Shields was hiding a shotgun in his coat. 
During the robbery, Shields shot the store clerk and the three boys left. Jackson was tried of and convicted of capital murder and aggravated robbery in July of 2003. The trial court sentenced Jackson to mandatory life without parole. So the similarities between the Miller case and the Jackson case that were brought together against the Supreme Court, um, in both cases, it was two 14-year-olds that were convicted of murder and sentenced to a mandatory term of life without parole. Um, the highest courts of both Alabama and Arkansas upheld those sentences, but the Supreme Court reversed it, I believe, in a 5-4 um, decision. I think the opinion of the court was authored by Justice Kagan. They Some reasons that they cited primarily the fundamental differences between children and adults, um, and they talked about how they are, especially for sentencing purposes, fundamentally different. They have a lack of maturity, and their their sense of responsibility is not fully formed yet, and so children are naturally going to be more impulsive, more reckless, and not evaluate risks quite as well when they're making decisions. Um, additionally, they're more vulnerable to peer pressure, negative influences. You know, you think about people when you're in middle school and stuff, it's like that's one of the most important things that you want to fit in. You don't want to like look weird in front of your friends. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, so they, they demand much more of an individualized approach because you're dealing with such a, uh, such a, a grave punishment. Right, a case-by-case -case basis rather than just this umbrella. Exactly. And I believe uh, the dissenting opinions, there was a couple different um, reasons why, but one in specific uh, that was written by Justice Thomas um, basically said that the Eighth Amendment, when it says that, you know, we should be protected from cruel and unusual punishments, was primarily meant to be understood as prohibiting certain methods of punishment that are more akin to torture. Um, so things that would have been considered, quote unquote, cruel and unusual at the time that the Bill of Rights was adopted. So the dissenting opinions um, basically kept the, kept up with the the opinion that um, the... Like the blanketing of the juvenile life without parole that we're referring to? Yes, mm -hmm. and that it was not the... It's not the role of the court to invalidate any punishment that they think is, you know, not proportionate of the severity of the crime or to the certain class of offenders. Instead, that they say, um, you know, that they should really leave the morality question out of it and um, that should be left up to to the legislatures that authorize the penalty, i.e. the states. Mm -hmm. um, so the Supreme Court basically ruled that Miller, as well as all these other people who were convicted of capital murders, ju juveniles, they not necessarily did they revoke their sentencing, but they said that they should, they needed to be resentenced. Um, so that ruling paved the way for, I mean, you can look it up. There's a ton of different cases after that for inmates who were sentenced to life without parole as teenagers or young kids and have been, have since then asked to have their cases reconsidered. Yeah. And one of those cases actually is, Montgomery v. Louisiana. So some background about this case. In 1963, uh, a man named Henry, Henry Montgomery, who he was actually just barely 17 at the time, he killed a man named Charles Hunt and he received the death penalty when he was tried and sentenced for that case. So 
first received the death penalty, then he appealed to the Louisiana Supreme Court, and they overturned his conviction because of community prejudice. So given, you know, this was um, at sort of a pivotal time in American history, you know, the 1960s, the Louisiana Supreme Court decided that the death penalty wasn't quite fair. But when he was resentenced at his new trial, he was once again, you know, still convicted of the murder, but he was given the life without parole sentence. So similar to the case that you were just discussing, SK. And what brought about Montgomery v. Louisiana is that there was a discrepancy in the ruling from Miller. Different states weren't sure if these resentencing laws were meant to be applied retroactively, whether it just meant going forward that juveniles were not to be, you know, given these sentences in, you know, a blanketed sort of way. And so that is how Henry Montgomery brought his case to the Supreme Court. He was 68 at the time. And like I said, he'd been in prison since 1963. But according to, you know, people who were in prison with him, he was apparently a model member of the prison community. So he decided to take his case to court and after going up through, you know, the correct channels in Louisiana, the Louisiana Supreme Court decided that he would not be able to apply for a resentencing because they believed that Miller did not apply retroactively. So at this point, it was up to the Supreme Court to decide whether or not this is whether or not Miller applies retroactively to people who have already been charged. When the Montgomery case finally reached the Supreme Court, it was decided in a 6-3 ruling in favor of Montgomery that the previous ruling in Miller v. Alabama, which, as we said, refers to the mandatory life sentences without parole, uh, should not be applied in a blanketed way to juveniles convicted of murder, and that this decision does apply retroactively to cases that have already been decided and settled. So this gave uh, Montgomery the opportunity to be resentenced and, you know, possibly not serve life in prison without parole. The, the three justices who dissented, similar to the Miller case, just felt that the court didn't have the constitutional right to make this sort of decision. But I think that's an interesting an interesting aspect of these cases to bring up because at the end of the day, I don't think anyone is confused on, you know, the moral implications of sending children to prison for life. I think it's a lot more deciding, you know, based on constitutional theory, whether or not that gridlocks the court into determining you know, the outcome. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's, it's totally interesting. And I think um, it was something they might've been using in a lot of these opinions as part of their justification for why they believe that it should be, you know, banned altogether and not just left up to the States. And it's, it's an, it's an important thing to discuss, you know, when we're considering things, especially like criminal justice, because, on the one hand, we have these unchanging goals and and values that our country is is founded on, and we're meant to be, you know, adhering to that and and not changing from that because otherwise, then we have no no founding principles. Um, but at the same time, specifically with something like criminal justice, is that our levels of punishment oftentimes reflect 
our where our society is at in terms of like how developed we are you know in the case of like if we were some tribal like quasi state sort of thing and it was much more you know fending for yourself it's like if somebody you know did something really heinous it's not worth it for all of us to continue to work and continue to support that person and keep them alive and it probably does make the most sense in that case to kill them but that being said like in 2023 when we have the ability to you know have have the these criminal systems have these prisons where we can keep people you know and keep them more or less safely removed from society um where they're not a danger to other people or to themselves or we're able to invest time and resources into rehabilitating them then i think it it poses the question of okay well yes we have these unchanging principles but also sometimes our level of responsibility or like the appropriate response can be scaled to our 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 societal development if that makes sense oh 100 makes sense and at the end of the day as you were saying specifically with criminal justice cases or in this case uh all of these different cases that have to do specifically with children i think it's a really unique intersection of morality and our founding principles and also you know just humanity and really looking at people and it's hard to make that decision for other people and you know the courts and lawyers and juries they're putting that decision or putting that position sorry to make that decision for other people and so as much as we can you know adhere to those founding principles because as you said without principles what are we I also think it's important to to set people up for the most like possible success but absolutely and that's why all those things are important to talk about and understand. And, you know, that's exactly what we talk about here on Keep It Brief on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM WRFH. And so interestingly enough, although the Miller v. Alabama case set the precedent for a lot of um, people, you know, in, in the case that you talked about, Camden, to um, after the fact, what's the word I'm looking for? like retroactively, retroactively. yeah um <laughs> to retroactively appeal their sentencing and a lot of a lot of inmates um ended up qualifying for resentencing so even though uh this miller kid his case is what set the foundation for it in 2021 actually just two years ago miller finally it was her, his time to have his resentencing and his sentence was reaffirmed um so a little bit of i don't know about poetic justice but it's ironic um yeah so well and i guess that's an interesting point too possibly even for you know people who are strongly against removing these types of sentences it's like not to play devil's advocate but it's like these people might still serve these sentences just because we're giving the or just because the courts are giving the opportunity to resentence possibly not just give every single juvenile offender this sentence without you know paying specific attention to different factors of the case you know like you said earlier home life or um age things like that it's like these sentences might still be affirmed so i i see the personally you know i see the value in giving people the opportunity to possibly change this and if if it's still just then it's still just and at that point 
there's nothing else that can really be done about it. But right, because if if we if we adopt that and if we have if we make it where it becomes that every crime has a prescriptive punishment, then you essentially are taking away the purpose of even having you know these individual court systems and, and these juries and humans and, there mm-hmm. to actually make those nuanced opinions because it's like okay if a then b and b then c then it's like okay we just have our long list of rules and you go and you find whatever your offense was and then you get your punishment mm-hmm. um so then it's like then why not just get rid of all those courts and uh right save a bunch of money serious yeah why need lawyers and judges or any of those things if speaking of money that's another thing is um you know keeping especially these um, kids in there for a life without parole. It's it's important to note the difference between life without parole between a 17-year-old person and a 60-year-old one. So it's like that's actually someone's full life ahead of them versus someone who's got, you know, 10, 20, 30 years left. Um, because believe it or not, it's pretty expensive. It's on the taxpayer's uh, a dime to to basically keep people alive and in prison. States spend on average, here's the number, $33,274 per incarcerated individual annually. This cost roughly doubles after a person turns 55. So a 50-year sentence for a 16-year-old will cost taxpayers upwards of $2.25 million. Okay. So that's a pretty insane amount. It's like Yeah, that's a lot of money. You know, especially for someone who's actually truly serving their whole life versus someone who's getting what it's in essence like a 15 year sentence if they're already older. Exactly. Um, so if the morality aspect of it doesn't doesn't appeal to you, maybe maybe, maybe the, the cost does. will. Yeah. Money talks. So while these individuals should be held accountable and justice should be served, the reality is that many of these kids like Miller and Jackson are in a sense victims of themselves. It's not their fault. The situations in which they were born, the family that they got, and the cards that they got dealt in life, they're victims of circumstances that they can't control, and they're too young to escape. You know, what do you expect them to do? Like, right. with what money and with what resources leave, mm-hmm. or no better. It's like if the people that they're being raised by are teaching them that this is how you survive. Thank you guys so much for listening. This has been another episode of Keep It Brief on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM, WRFH. Make sure to tune in next week for our next episode.